The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, Senior Writer at Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us for what I hope will be a timely discussion on how to invest during a bear market. I'm so delighted to have Peter Lazaroff, Chief Investment Officer at Plan Corp, as my guest today. And we're in very capable hands. Peter's a chartered financial analyst and a certified financial planner. He also hosts a podcast, writes a blog, and is author of the book, Making Money Simple. Welcome, Peter. Lauren, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to, to have this conversation with you. It's great to have you here today. So this is really an anxious time for many investors. We are in a bear market territory, you know, when stocks decline at least 20% from their recent highs. We have sky-high inflation, rising interest rates, the war dragging on in Ukraine. What's the general advice you're giving clients at the moment? Clients this time around, on average, don't seem quite as nervous as maybe in 2020. And I think a little of that is because we have just lived through a more vicious downturn. But this one's different in a lot of ways. And that's not to say that there aren't people who are still nervous because every bear market is very uniquely scary in its own way. And NASA has a saying that I really love that's they say that there's no problem bad enough that you can't make it worse. <laughs> and so while it's tempting to make an adjustment to your asset allocation, particularly an adjustment that involves reducing your allocation to stocks, I do like to point out to clients that half of the S&P 500's best days in the past 20 years have occurred during a bear market. And another 34% of the market's best days took place in the first two months of a bull market. And missing those best days is far more harmful to your long-term wealth than staying the course through the current market environment. And you know, I think saying stay the course sometimes seems like you're ignoring that, hey, things are not good and they might get worse. And that's not really it at all. I'm just of the, the belief that being a long-term investor means accepting these inevitable periods of negative returns. And these the, the uncertainty that comes with that and the temporary losses those are really just the cost you must bear in exchange for higher expected returns that stocks provide. And so when we when I speak to clients and other investors, I like to try to remind them of the relationship between risk and return and that oftentimes if you're feeling uneasy about the recent market losses, a far better course of action than making a portfolio change or looking to the portfolio to do something is to look at your financial plan that hopefully was informing your portfolio in the first place. That makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned portfolios and you know this year lots of ink has been spilled, you know, writing eulogies for the 6040 portfolio. And obviously, you know, neither stocks nor bonds are doing well this year. 
Um, just this morning, I was reading a data track uh, research note that pointed out that investors enjoyed a kind of a relatively long period of sort of high 60-40 portfolio returns. I think it was from 2013 to 22. It was averaging about 14.1%. Um, and data track's view was that going forward, uh, a more reasonable expectation uh, for future five-year annualized returns would be closer to somewhere between, you know, five and 10%. So, you know, what's your take on the 60-40 portfolio? Are sort of the calls for the death of you know, the portfolio overdone? Um, what's your view? Well, I wish in my 15-year career that I had been collecting magazine covers for all the different times that the 60-40 portfolio was declared dead. And it's really no surprise, you had mentioned at the onset of the episode here that there's been this perfect storm of negative market drivers that are pushing both stocks and bond prices lower. And so people question, you know, this diversification aspect because, because when both stocks and bonds are going lower, you've somewhat impaired that normal diversification of risks that you see in a balanced portfolio. But these periods, they're not unheard of. Um, when you go back to 1976 and look at monthly returns, 15% of the time, U.S. stocks and investment-grade bonds have been negative. So in other words, roughly every seven months, we'd expect to see both of those down. And when you think about it like that, it's not terribly unusual. But when you extend from looking at monthly periods to three-year periods, there are no three-year periods where both asset classes are down. And so I think the idea that the 60-40 is dead is ultimately a distraction from what I think is required to be a successful long-term investor. And so when I hear people ask, or people ask me, you know, is the 60-40 dead? I see there being two components here. The first, um, you know, the broader, more important issue, I guess, is the effectiveness of a diversified portfolio. And in that sense, 60-40, I think, is sort of our shorthand way of saying an investor's strategic asset allocation whatever the target mix may be. And you'd mentioned some backward looking data. Um, I, I believe you just said 14.1%. Mm -hmm. I, I happen to know that the previous three years, the 60-40 delivered at 14.3. So that's not all that different. And when you include the losses of 2022, the four-year annualized return falls back down to 7%. But that is actually right in line with historical norms. So I think going forward, yields are higher, valuations are lower, which I'd argue means we'd expect future returns to actually be higher, which leads me to what I think is the second component of this question conversation is, do investors need something other than a mix of globally diversified stocks and bonds in order to meet their goals? And the crux of this question to me is around expected returns. And it, it, honestly, a lot of people who like alternatives the most commonly cited case that I hear is lower expected returns for publicly traded stocks and bonds. And we've been hearing that case for years. I don't think alternative investments are inherently bad, but I don't always think that advisors and their investors have the right expectations in place. Because as an asset allocator myself, there's basically two reasons someone should want to think about adding a portfolio exposure that's diversification or return enhancement. And in my experience working directly with investors, they really appreciate that return enhancement when it materializes, right? So mm -hmm. the challenge is identifying those opportunities in advance and a lot of emphasis here on in advance and then capturing them. And, and that's pretty uncertain of whether or not you can do that. Backward looking data, I can build the perfect portfolio. 
getting the perfect portfolio going forward that hinges on return enhancement, it's a fairly uncertain task. Meanwhile, projecting out improvements to diversification, it can actually be done with a bit more certainty. And it's a case for a number of alternative strategies that I'll endorse way more quickly. But investors rarely appreciate diversification in the moment because it means you're always owning a loser. And the diversified portfolio is always going to trail the winning asset class of any given period. So I think the 60-40 portfolio, is it dead? I would say no, because that's Mm -hmm. sort of a way of saying, is a diversified stock bond mix not effective to meet long-term goals? I don't know what returns will be over the next five or 10 years. When you look at a lot of major capital market assumptions that are put out into the public, you would expect it to be lower than average returns perhaps over the next 10 years. But I'm thinking about 20 years, 30 years, unless I'm 80 years old as an investor, 10 years is, you know, I have a much longer runway than 10 years. And when you start looking at 30 year returns, particularly 30 year real returns, that very, very rarely goes far away from the long-term average. And so for me, it's not dead. I think this is just sort of one of those periods where stocks and bonds are going lower. And if anything, because they're lower, I think that means the future is a little bit brighter for it. Well, that's good advice. I just want to remind the audience that if you have a question for Peter, please do submit them in the Q&A feature. We'll leave a, a few minutes at the end to go through the audience questions. So I'd love to turn a little bit to inflation. You know, we're all feeling the effects of sky high inflation, whether it's at the grocery store or the gas pump. Uh, and tomorrow, which is uh, the, the 13th, the Department of Labor will release June CPI. And I read that the economists uh, polled by Reuters are forecasting annual inflation of 8.7% in June, and that's just up uh, from, you know, 8.6% the previous month. So, you know, across the economy, everyone's sort of asking the same question, uh, when will inflation peak? Do you think we're close to peak inflation? I hear a lot of people smarter than me, the economists that I follow, the so-called market commentators who put out a lot of good data, have pointed to a number of data points where inflation might be peaking. And there's sort of three causes of inflation. It's There can be supply side, there can be demand side, and then there can be inflation expectations. So those are sort of the three drivers that I see. Inflation expectations have come down materially. And I look at the five-year break even or the 10-year break even as evidence of that. You see both of those where the bond market is expecting average inflation over the next five or 10 years to be pretty close to 3%. I believe for the five-year, it's like 3.1 or 3.2, whereas for the 10-year, I'm fairly certain it's 2.8, somewhere in that range. So inflation expectations have come down. Supply side issues, I have a lot of faith in corporations figuring out the supply chain. That is not an overnight endeavor could be a multi-year endeavor. And there's obviously some big political, geopolitical events and global issues that are beyond their control. But the Fed, they can't control supply side. But demand, yeah, I think we're starting to see some areas, particularly um, in the housing market, um, some with commodity prices, where I am hopeful that the the worst of inflation is behind us. But it's definitely something everyone's going to be keeping their eyes on because it's going to direct not just how the Federal Reserve implements policy, but how the entire uh, planet, you know, how all the central banks around the world are implementing their own monetary policy. Yeah. 
So let's just take this to a practical level and perhaps talk about some of the you know, pros and cons of various inflation hedges. And, and one I'd love to chat about is, is I-bonds. Um, I actually bought one recently. I think it was after reading Jason Zweig's column about I-bonds. And I, I rushed off and bought one. So what do you think about I-bonds? Is, is that a good inflation hedge? Should, should investors be thinking about buying one of those? Well, I-bonds have certainly been in vogue. I hear sometimes that the website is even crashing from demand. I have no issue with I-bonds. You know, typically, when we speak to clients about I-bonds, they figure that the $10,000 per person limit just isn't worth the hassle. I mean, it's not that hard to go out and buy an I-bond. I don't know how you felt about the experience, Lauren, but I think that there's a lot of decent uses beyond just hedging inflation. So the use case for an I-bond, if you have a million-dollar portfolio and you're going to buy $10,000 or maybe you're married, so you're going to buy $20,000 of I-bonds, yeah, you're not really moving the needle. And the yields are likely to come down as inflation cools off. Mm -hmm. So in the very near term, sure, it's sort of like moving your money around from different banks to chase the highest interest rate. At a certain point, I don't think that it's worth it. However, there are goals, short-term goals, if you're saving up for a down payment on a new house, that actually seems like a really great place for it, particularly if you're a first-time home buyer. You know, if you enjoy the the game of personal finance where you try to squeeze every penny out of everything, yeah, by all means, there's nothing wrong with I-bonds. I, I do think I caution people uh, against trying to generate a tax return so that they can buy even more I-bonds. So if you're unfamiliar, you can get up to $5,000, I'm fairly certain, of a paper-issued I-bond if you're owed a federal tax return. Mm -hmm. So I was hearing of people trying to make sure they get a tax return just to take ownership of this piece of paper so you can't even get it digitally. So it's one more step of hassle. I don't know. I think that's a little too enthusiastic, in my opinion. But mm -hmm. absolutely nothing wrong with I-bonds. I think if you're going to go buy them, just realize that if you don't hold them for at least a year, you do give up some of the interest in the form of a penalty. But beyond that, I think they're a perfectly fine inflation hedge. Great. And what about tips? Tips are interesting. So I think it's really important that you understand why you own them. And a lot of what influences my perspective from building a portfolio has to do with conversations that I have with clients when they're upset about something or they don't understand something. And tips, if you have a liability that's five years away, and you go buy a five-year tip, you are going to perfectly hedge that liability against CPI inflation. It's a great use for tips. Short-term tips, you know, laddering tips that way to where you're trying to match an asset to a liability, that has a lot of benefit. Where tips are often used, and I think people get confused, is that they fluctuate with changes in inflation expectations. So tips have actually performed pretty poorly recently because expected inflation has fallen more than what people thought. And so when you own tips, they're going to be far more volatile than anything else in your fixed income portfolio, which is, again, not a bad thing. You just have to be aware of it. it makes them a wonderful fixed income diversifier. So what's interesting, I would actually prefer to own tips for the diversification benefit than the inflation hedging benefit. Um, and I think that when people see something as volatile in their port fixed income portfolio, my question is, will they stick with it? Yeah. Now, if 
you're going to go out and buy tips today thinking you're hedging inflation, it's a little bit like uh, buying home insurance while your roof is on fire. Like it's not going to be cheap. It is really fully priced at this point. And the way that you quote win on buying tips today is that inflation comes out higher than the market's expected, expecting it to be. So again, you're looking at those break-even rates. Um, and the final thing I'll note about tips is most tip funds um, are highly interest rate sensitive. The duration, which just a level set for everybody, duration is just a measure of interest rate sensitivity. Tip funds typically are very sensitive to interest rates. So I mentioned tips have done poorly this year. I I'm mostly referring to prominent tip funds that because interest rates are rising, prices are falling on those tips. So I think, you know, just being aware of what a tip does and why it moves in different ways is extremely important. It can be a perfect hedge for a specific liability. So if you're doing asset liability matching, um, and then finally, you know, my personal preference, if I were using tips would be from the perspective of they're lowly correlated to other fixed income assets, and thus they provide a diversification benefit. The key is though, you just have to really appreciate that diversification, both in the good and the bad times. Mm -hmm. So are there other inflation hedges you think our audience should think about perhaps uh, short duration bonds, anything in the equities area? Well, short duration bonds, those have historically performed very, very well in, in inflationary periods. I would argue that it's not exactly a hedge, but it does allow you to reinvest at the higher rates that typically follow inflationary periods. Um, from a long-term perspective, there is no better hedge, in my opinion, than stocks. You know, Historically, going back to 1928, you look at the S&P 500 and earnings and dividends have both grown by about 5%. And you match that to long-term inflation, which is about 3%. And so that 2% that advantage in those components compounded over multiple decades, those are great. Um, and when inflation is above 6%, stocks have lower than average returns. And when inflation's rising, stocks have lower than average returns. So it's not to say that stocks do well during the periods, but they still offer you higher returns in part because those companies are passing on higher costs to the end consumer, which pushes up revenue. Now, the key is, can they control their costs from the point at which it's revenue down to the point at which it's actually profit? But they have a really long history of doing so. And typically, I'm of the opinion that an explicit inflation hedge is not really necessary if at least half of your portfolio is in stocks. So maybe another way to say that is, if you have a 50-50 portfolio or something with more stocks, 60-40, 70-30, 80-20, cetera. I feel like stocks are your inflation hedge. You probably don't really need to worry about all these other different types of hedges. Hmm. Well, let's stick with uh, with stocks for, for another minute or two. Um, I want to pick up a question that Ben Carlson posed in a recent blog post. And that was, you know, how do I invest a lump sum during a bear market? And I raised this because it brings up an important question. You know, should you invest all that money over time, which is known as dollar cost averaging, uh, or now, sort of in one lump sum. So, you know, with dollar cost averaging, the typical approach is sort of equal size payments over a specific time period. So help us out here. If I, if I want to sort of deploy a lump sum <laughs> at the moment, should I be thinking about dollar cost averaging? Should I put it all in at once? What shall I be doing? Well, Lauren, I think the key part of your question is we're talking about you have 
a pile of cash, whether it's because you've been saving or you got some sort of windfall. There's no doubt that ongoing investments via dollar cost averaging is superior than just letting a bunch of cash accumulate and occasionally deploying it when you feel is right. But if you have a large amount of money, a lump sum investment gives you the highest probability for the highest expected return. You know, mathematically, that is definitely the right choice. However, again, in practice, you're trying to minimize regret. And I think regret is one of those things, you know, in order to minimize regret about your investments, it's helpful to think about how you might feel in the future about the choices that you're going to make with your portfolio today. So you might ask yourself, in 10 years, what would make me regret this decision? Um, are there ways that this decision could lead to bad outcomes? Or how would I feel in these scenarios? And for me, I know that in 10 years from now, the market is very likely to be higher. And whether or not I dollar cost it averaged over the course of 12 months. And if you are going to go the route of dollar cost averaging, I wouldn't extend it beyond 12 months. So if that means making four equal investments over a quarterly basis, or you do it every six months or every month, I think that's a fine way. But again, know that mathematically, the lump sum is the best odds of having the higher return. Uh, I know that you mentioned Ben Carlson's the one who posed the question. He's had some data on it. I know one of his partners, Nick Majuli, has done a really nice analysis on it. And I want to say it's something like 80% of periods show that the lump sum investor does best. And the difference between someone who lump sums versus invests at the absolute bottom of the market versus the absolute top, it's actually not that different. And I wish I had some of the data in front of me, but you know, it's shockingly similar. So I think what you're trying to do is you dollar cost average in. If you think 10 years from now, you'll regret the market falling 20% more so than, you know, the market running up 20% because and you missing out on that run because you dollar cost averaged. So I've got one more quick question before we go to audience Q&A because I want to make sure I leave some time for those questions. And this is more of a sort of a personal finance type of question. What are some of the best ways to use one's savings account during a bear market? So if I've got that lump sum and I don't particularly want to deploy it, should I just be leaving it in a savings account or, or what should we be doing with that money? I like this question because there's a couple different ways to tackle it. And I'm going to tackle it primarily from that of the working investor, so not from a retiree. Um, I think that a lot of people, particularly those who are passionate about investing, don't place enough emphasis on having an emergency fund or more of what I've been recently trying to rebrand as a cash reserve. Because if you need to have something to fall back on if there's some sort of downfall in your life, medical, you know, car, any sort of issue, you lose your job, that gives you something to fall back on. It also allows you to take some career risk at a certain point in time. It allows you to say yes to a job that's heavy on equity compensation. It allows you to start a new business and it allows you to invest opportunistically. So if you have a large sum of money and you're not super sure about investing in the market, but you don't have anywhere between three to 12 months of living expenses in an online bank that isn't easy to spend on a daily basis, you know, keeping it separate from your primary checking, I'd encourage you to go ahead and fund that. Um, if you do have an emergency fund in place, one thing you might consider doing is using the extra money to live off the difference of advanced funding your 401k. 
So we're halfway through the year. Perhaps you've gone halfway towards maxing out your company retirement plan, but maybe you just put 100% of your future paychecks in there until you've maxed out and then you live off the balance of your cash to sort of make up for that cash flow difference. That way you are investing while the market's down roughly 20% in an account that is designed to be multi-decade. I think that can be a really good use of the cash and a way to sort of supercharge your retirement savings. One other consideration, and again, you said it's if someone's not very comfortable investing, but I have to call out if you have an HSA plan, if you have access to a health savings account, um, and that's really only available to people in high deductible plans, and those aren't always the right choice, and, and we can go deeper on that if you'd like, but if you, there's a triple tax benefit to those accounts. Honestly, I think they're better than a Roth for mo- if, if the high deductible health plan makes sense for you. An HSA can be a more powerful tool than a Roth because you get the tax deduction on the way in, the tax-free growth while it's in there, and then tax-free withdrawals on qualified medical expenses. And that even means, you know, I had an ankle injury a few years ago and I had all sorts of medical bills and I'm saving those medical bills because when I'm 65, I can pull out those old receipts and withdraw the money. That's a qualified expense that happened after I'd been making the contributions. So again, if you are going to maybe emphasize some of those longer term accounts with your extra money, that's maybe a good use if you weren't super excited about putting the money into the market today, because I think most people who feel that way recognize that some of those retirement accounts are multi-decade and that they can allow those to fall more or stay at low levels for a longer period of time. That's really great advice. Uh, I'm going to hop over to sort of audience questions now, just to let everyone know that Peter can't comment on specific stocks, but can, I guess, provide more generalities. And our first question comes in from Brandon, and it's actually a stock question. And he says, what are the top five safe international stocks to invest in now? You know, everyone thinks that I'm like keeping all of the high return, low risk investment ideas to myself. Like if, if I, if I, I will tell you this, if there were such a thing, a safe, good returning opportunity, I, I probably would keep that to myself and, and not need a job. But I think what's really, so I, I'm not personally of the belief that buying individual stocks is a good idea. And it's mostly a mathematical probability based assessment. So in general, when I think about investing, I am more concerned about implementing a bad idea than missing out on a good one. And with individual stocks, the rate at which they underperform the broad market is shockingly large. And you know, I think the thing that's interesting about this question in international specifically is that the outlook for broad-based international markets is arguably much better than that for the US. So I think most 10-year asset class return outlooks that I see, again, don't want to mention specific names, but major providers put out a lot of, a lot of different projections, You know, show that international um, equities, both developed and emerging markets, over the next 10 years could have as much as a two percentage point uh, delta over US equities. So I do think that finding broad-based, highly diversified, low-cost global equity exposure is very important. I do know that about a decade ago, the only conversation I was having with investors was, hey, why do we have so much US? We should have more international, particularly emerging. Everyone thought at that point China was going to take over the US and that the dollar was not going to be the reserve currency anymore. And that was because 
the S&P 500 just went through a 12-year stretch where T-bills outperformed it on an annual basis. Now, fast forward to 2022, and we've had, I don't know, 15 years of international underperformance versus U.S. And the common question I hear is, why do we have international? We should have more U.S. And the valuations suggest that there is a decent probability that global equities outperform. And when you look historically at 10-year periods or even one-year periods where U.S. returns are less than 6%, international outperforms 94% of the time. Um, when U.S. returns are below 4%, international returns, as measured by MSCI World Index, uh, outperform 100% of the time. So I'm, I'm dismissing the question a little in the sense that I would think more broadly in terms of targeting international exposure as opposed to individual stocks. Picking individual stocks is purely a guessing game. And it's one thing to even know what companies are good it's another to really understand what is where are the odds mispriced. And that's that's just a really tough task that even the professionals can't do. You see active managers fail to beat the index each and every year, each and every one, three, five, 10, 15 year period. So if the professionals can't do it, I, I would urge uh, listeners not to try to do it either. Mm -hmm. John asks, is it time to buy growth equities yet? Well, you're asking someone who is long-term value biased. So I'm going to say, I hope not, uh, as, I, <laughs> as I have a pretty substantial value bias in my personal portfolio, as well as the portfolios that we're managing for clients. Here's the thing is that the difference in valuation between the most expensive growth stocks and the cheapest value stocks has never been wider. And there's no real way to time these things. Um, Cliff Asness of AQR talks a little bit about like sinning a little bit. Like you shouldn't factor time, but he, maybe you should sin just a touch. I, I don't know if that's the right thing, but it it's hard not to be excited about the prospects of value right now, both with the differences in relative expensiveness and cheapness of growth versus value, but also with inflation high and interest rates rising, that places more value on profits today versus profits in the future. And so if you're a growth investor, you're hoping that profits will be higher in the future. But when interest rates are zero, those you do a discounted cash flow, you know, the present value of future profits, whether they're real or just an idea of future profits, those are much more valuable. But as interest rates rise, those future profits are less valuable. So honestly, I mean, I don't know. I'll never, I can't predict the future. I'm pretty excited about value investing at the present. Um, but you just never know. I would say that what's very unusual about this post-pandemic cycle is a lot of the normal indicators, both, especially in the economy, I think are going to be hard to rely on because of the pandemic downturn in the pandemic economy, and maybe this is a post-pandemic economy, things are happening that are not normal textbook uh, occurrences. And we don't have a lot of history to draw on other than something in 1904. And you know, there just isn't that much economic or market data to, to look back on from that period. Mm -hmm. So we're going to switch gears from, from stocks to bonds. And Bob asks, in 2009, MetLife issued a 30-year long-term non-callable subordinated debenture playing 10.75 due in 2039. 
any idea of current long-term non-callable corporate bonds? So a couple things. This is a little bit like the international stock question um, in the sense that individual bonds as a whole, I think are somewhat disadvantaged relative to bond funds, particularly today. And I will get into that in a second, but first I also have to point out that risk and return are related. It, it's one of the very first things I was talking about, but in a different context. I think in fixed income, that risk return relationship is perhaps more clear than it is in stocks because the real drivers of fixed income return uh, are term and, and credit risk. And so if I look at a US Treasury yield and assume that the US Treasury is the risk free rate, because that's, you know, basic finances assumption, whether or not that should be, you know, totally different debate. Corporate spreads, you know, when when corporate yields are much higher than treasuries, you do get paid more to own them. But if you're earning an outsized yield, it means you're either taking on more term risk. So you're going to have a longer term bond. You're going to have higher duration. You're going to be more sensitive to interest rate risk. And you're having a higher credit risk, meaning there's a higher risk of default. You shouldn't be able to earn stock-like returns in bonds without a very, very heavy level of risk. So in general, you know the, the bond being referenced um, sounds pretty risky to me, just on the very little that I know about it. On the idea of individual bonds versus bond funds, I think this is important, particularly today. You know, there's there's some disadvantages to individual bonds that hold in all market types. So individual bonds are often higher cost. Um, you know, there's a study from I believe it's 2015 that shows that the average transaction cost for retail retail size trades is 85 basis points or 0.85 percent. So you don't really see the cost of your bond transactions. It gets kind of baked into the yield and the transaction price that you ultimately buy the bond at. Um, and individual bonds, they're also going to create a bit of cash drag. So, I mean, let's say you own a $100,000 corporate bond yielding 2.5%. Well, that means you get $1,250 in interest every six months. Well, what are you putting that money into? Um, you, know, you can't buy a bond for that little. And obviously, just like with stocks, you know, if you have an individual bond, there's a major lack of diversification. Um, so if you just look at like a common, I don't want to mention specific bond fund names for compliance purposes, but if you look at some common total bond market indexes, and they hold 10,000 positions. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty diversified. But I think the big factor here, and this kind of goes back to that cash drag, like what are you going to do with the extra interest? When interest rates are rising, Obviously, there are immediate bond price declines, but the long-term returns are enhanced because you're able to reinvest at higher rates. So the, the real key calculation here is that as long as your time horizon, a lot of people like individual bonds. Let me step back. A lot of people like individual bonds because they say, well, I know that I'm getting the money there. There's no price fluctuations. That's not totally true because if you go and price your bond every single day, you would see those, those price fluctuations. And in a bond fund, yes, there are bond price declines when interest rates go up. But if you are going to hold the fund longer than the duration of the fund, those interest uh, increases are actually going to be additive to return. So just to give a, a quick example, um, and you can go to peterlazaroff.com and just search the word bonds and you'll probably see some graphics of this. But if we imagine a, bo a bond portfolio with a duration of three, 
and we look at, hey, what's the difference between interest rates not changing, uh, interest rates going up by a percent or interest rates going down by a percent? Yes, in the first three years, in the scenario where interest rates went down, that's going to be the highest return. Or if they didn't change, that's going to be the next highest return. But once you pass year three, where interest rates increased, you ended up having more return because you're reinvesting the interest in principle in higher yielding bonds faster. So I think in a rising rate environment, a bond funds is going to be your best place to take advantage of that. The other big benefits in this environment, I think, are just diversification and flexibility. Because when returns are low, mistakes are going to be super costly. And bond returns are going to be the lowest since the 50s. And it's just simple math. Um, you look at a 10-year yield, that's what your average return over the next 10 years is going to be. So it, it, I'm not making a prognostication by saying returns are going to be the lowest since the 50s. They just are. And so I'm a big fan of looking to core bonds, giving a manager who can extend term um, when the yield curve is steeper at different points or can take on more credit risk when spreads are wide. I think that's more of the way that you can add return than looking at specific bonds. Great. We're almost out of time. I want to squeeze in one last question. And my apologies to some of the audience who sent in questions, but we just haven't had a chance to get to them. We'll end on something that uh, like this, a lot of us <laughs> have experienced in this question of regret. And Rumbi asks, are there moments you doubt whether you've made the right decision? If that's the case, how do you reassure yourself? What an awesome question. Well, I'll regret telling all the listeners, um, first of all, before I answer that, that if you go to peterlazaroff.com slash free book, the first 50 people to do that today, I'll go ahead and ship you a free book. You must be in the continental US though. So peterlazaroff.com slash free book. I love this question of regret. And you know, there's a lot of regret. You, you can think about the major choices you've made in your life, whether that's picking a career path or choosing a life partner, deciding to have children, changing jobs. You know, the potential future is completely unknowable in the moment, but the act of choosing something, whether it's right or wrong or optimal or less so, it gives us this sense of control and responsibility over our decision. And Unlike those big life events I just mentioned, with investing, there is a really black and white scoreboard that you get to see and say, oh my gosh, I made a mistake, or at least it feels that way. Investing is just, it's so quantifiable. It leads us to believe there's always an objectively optimal decision out there. And so, you know, for me, I mentioned earlier, I am more concerned about implementing a bad idea than missing out on a good one. And so when I think about investments, you know, what would cause more pain, you know, I think making that bad investment or missing out on the good one, that, that does sort of shape how I feel about things. So the more evidence-based about your process, you can be the better. For me personally, I don't know if there's any one thing I regret. I, I think I look back on my investing history. I used to invest in individual stocks. As I learned more and more about the competition of investing, I decided that that wasn't a good idea and I changed course. The vast majority of my personal investments are just in a single mutual fund that's globally diversified, um, you know, very low cost. I mentioned it does have a, a value bias. Might I regret that decision in 30 or 40 years? Obviously, it's possible. In my mind, when I made that decision, which was a very big decision, in my opinion, I'd rolled over my previous employer's 401k, and that was basically my life savings at the time. And, I was, and it took a while to make the choice. 
But to me, I figured, well, the worst case outcome, in my opinion, is I'm going to have market-like returns over 40 years. That's not so bad. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I would maybe say that investing in individual stocks is a regret. On the other hand, I learned so much as a result of it. Um, it also made a big difference when I was taking my CFA exams to have individual stocks to look at. You know, so it's hard to point to what I know now is probably not optimal. I also did learn a lot. So I don't know if I'm dodging the question a little. I do know from a perspective of, you know, PlanCorp, we're managing roughly $6 billion for clients across the country. We write down a lot and we write down a lot of what potential futures might look like. That way, when we go back, if we were right or wrong, we can better evaluate the quality of the decision and not just look at the outcome. Because sometimes you make the right choice and get an unlucky outcome. And so I think it's trying to document as much as possible and rely on evidence as opposed to opinions as much as possible to make those decisions to help you minimize regret in the future. So many great nuggets in this conversation today, Peter. Um, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you to the audience for tuning in. We hope you can join us again tomorrow when Market Watch reporter Sylvia Ascarelli and her guest Lynn Gerrell will discuss retiring abroad, in this case, southern France. Thank you for listening. Be well and have a wonderful day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.